But I do think that the kind of horror that the show is is not necessarily the same kind of horror that the book is. Right. I agree. Um, I think the show, do, like, tends to lean into bigger, flashier scares and tenser moments um, and and bigger payoffs. And the book is all about creeping dread. It's all about the thing unseen. It's all about the implication of something scary. Um, it's it's in, in that way the 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 vibe of the horror is just slightly different. It's like slightly different enough to yeah. where if you're a big fan of this book, you might be frustrated to see this kind of adaptation. I want to say one thing really quickly too, though, just for the listener, is that Luke has only seen half the show, so he's seen five episodes, and like we haven't really been at the house all that much. Welcome guests to episode 187 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm James. And I'm Luke. And this week we discuss the first five episodes of Mike Flanagan's 2018 series, The Haunting of Hill House. So I'm so excited to talk about this project with you, Luke. Um, We are now onto the show and I had already seen it, but it's been a lot of fun for me to revisit after now reading the source material. And I just wanted to know, like, are you spooked out enough? Are you? How are you feeling? Uh, no, it's been good. I uh, the the show has a oppressive atmosphere to it. It has a look to it. It like my wife walked like this is not her kind of show, right? Um, but she walked in and and just for a moment like watched and and like something spooky happened. You know, some 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 sort of you know jump scare happened. You know, there was an there was some sort of manifestation. And uh, it just kind of told me like this show is almost classic horror in a way. Like it's it's done well, but it, it has a very classic feel. Um, it, ha- it it has it, it swings big. Um, yeah. And at, I think it is both a feature and a detriment a little bit, um, which mm-hmm. we can get into. But um, this show the show has a lot going for it, and it definitely is scary. Um, even from the other room. You know, it was, you know, there's, there's loud noises, there's screams, there's lots of sounds in this that uh, are disturbing. So even from the other room, my wife is like hearing stuff. She's like, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) Why would you watch that? (laughs) I went back and because this isn't the first time we've covered something by Mike Flanagan, we we covered Dr. Sleep, which was its own entire thing. He was trying to adapt like Kubrick's, a sequel to Kubrick's film and Stephen King's novel like adapt there's a lot of novel. shared dna here too especially after seeing dr sleep i, I can see a lot of, of why they chose him honestly because this came before so why they chose him for dr sleep why he got that gig i can see why I, and, and i can see why people thought it's a a good fit yeah he kind of does this thing with this show where he like he's expanded it and modernized it by talking about things yeah. like mental illness and things that weren't being talked about at the time of the novel being written really and yeah. like tying that into some of the horror elements and 
uh, we'll get more into that stuff though. Uh, so I went back to listen to our Dr. Sleep coverage and I realized I didn't talk too much about Mike Flanagan. So I would like to talk about him more, uh, in this episode, but I also, part of the thing that I read in that episode said that he wasn't necessarily known for jump scares. And I was like, yeah. what? I was I, like watching the show. I was thinking about yeah, how like there's not, lots of jump scares in the show, but I would say it's and it's not even like he's it's not jump scares of like creatures necessarily. It's the editing. It's the way that, mm-hmm. you know, like there's like hard cuts to things with loud noises yeah. and things like loud that. Loud noises. Are, if you have a hard cut and a loud noise, I'm sorry, that's a jump scare. Right. <laughs> you might want to pretend like it's not, but it is. <laughs> I agree. And so I, rem- I remember when I was listening to this Dr. Sleep episode, I was like, damn, like that's not really very true. So definitely wanted yeah. to, to uh, pull that back a little bit. He's kind of leaning into that he's in this interesting territory like you talked about where he's like simultaneously making sort of a mid-2000s horror film it, but well at the same time and i'm saying mid-2000s horror film as like the ones that are like big blockbustery ones that people teenagers go to see in the movie theaters mm. um and while at the same time he's doing these really interesting character studies on each of our main characters from yeah. the family that I think goes beyond something like that and he really fleshes them out and has a lot of substance to it there and the way that it all ties together with the past and the present I think that's like yeah. a really strong point in this story so, so before we get that deep I, I do want to we're going to talk about each episode and we're going to talk about all these changes but just just in case anyone clicked on this wondering like they've read the book they enjoyed the book and they're like should I check out this show I haven't checked it out at all um, I just want to briefly sort of set up the biggest change, um, and that might give you an insight into like what you're in for. And that is that uh, the protagonists of this show are the Crane family, and the Crane family is not the same as it is in the in the book. It's a it's kind of a reimagining of our you know Eleanor and Theodora puts them in the same family with Luke. Um, adds in a few others. Uh, there's a character named Shirley, uh, which I'm sure is a reference to Shirley Jackson, um, and a character named Steve, um, who's, who's sort of an author. And then they have their parents, and they lived in Hill House when they were kids. And um, we have two main timelines, them as adults and them as children. And it's gonna it kind of bounces back and forth between those two timelines. And we learn about what happened to them as kids, because a bunch of you know wild stuff went down <laughs> when they're in Hill House, and then now they're feeling the effects as adults, um, and we're building towards things in adulthood, um, and uh, you know that's a big difference, right? Like it, so that doesn't sound like the book to me that people know and love. Um, in 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 that way, it feels almost like this is more of an homage to that, or like you know like a tribute to it in a way, mm-hmm. but. But not really trying to be an adaptation of it, even though it it technically is. Um, it, it it operates in an interesting way when it comes to adaptations. You know, like we don't we haven't covered many like this, but every now and then we do encounter one where it's like, yeah, it's roughly based off of this thing, but we're really gonna do something different. Yeah, it's very interesting too because it was uh, it's kind of done in a way where you see what he's doing. And it feels like I'm okay with it as somebody who read the source material. I'm like, okay, like we're not getting the scientific like Ghostbusters, not Ghostbusters, but like ghost hunting sort of story we were getting in Shirley Jackson's story where they were there to see what was going on. And, And it seems like you could also like extrapolate this out and say like if the characters weren't all the named the same things as they were in in 
Shirley Jackson's novel, maybe, you know, what happens to this whole family is what someone may someday come to study because there's like spooky stuff in the house and they want to see if it's real. You know what I yeah. mean? But it but it operates in, in a way that's like it. I think like the, the past timeline and the current timeline are like 1992 and 2018 or something like that. Yeah. So it doesn't really work in, in the way that it's like a prequel or a sequel. But it, there's a lot mm-hmm. of like taking of names and blending of characters and changing of events. But it's all. Yeah, but it's every all... now and then you see certain moments that are like, yeah, that's kind of like what happened in the book, but it's not <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, and in that way, I, I think, like you said, I can see why they would someone would see something like this and say, like, oh, Flanagan can sort of create his own version of like Kubrick and and um, Stephen King's The Shining, and and then blend it all up into Doctor Sleep with you know Stephen King's newer novel because it did require something much different. You can't just adapt directly either one of them because of the history of both of those like those property like the, the film and the book of the shining well, like it took something yeah. completely different we um i don't want to get too much into dr sleep um because that's uh, like a whole nother topic but we did record episodes about it and um, we're both on record that we we have mixed feelings about the adaptation um and uh i, I some of some of my concerns with that adaptation were popping up in this um mostly to a lesser extent um i think because i it, there wasn't this strange sequel to a you know this iconic film thing happening um but yeah i don't want to relitigate that so I, I do you know if people want to hear us talk about dr sleep definitely check out that episode um but for for fans of shirley jackson um again just talking to people who maybe haven't watched the show um i i think there is something here for you that is enjoyable um if you like this kind of horror, but I do think that the kind of horror that the show is, is not necessarily the same kind of horror that the book is. Right. I agree. Um, I think the show do, like tends to lean into bigger, flashier scares and tenser moments um, and, and bigger payoffs. And the book is all about creeping dread. It's all about the thing unseen it's all about the implication of something scary. Um, it's it's in, in that way the 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 vibe of the horror is just slightly different. It's like slightly different enough to yeah. where if you're a big fan of this book, you might be frustrated to see this kind of adaptation. I want to say one thing really quickly too, though, just for the listener, is that Luke has only seen half the show, so he's seen five episodes, and like we haven't really been at the house all that much. That's true. I have only seen five episodes. This is this is uh, my you know initial impressions from half the show, um, but I mean like I think if it really bothered people in the way that I imagine some people might be bothered by it, they probably won't even make it right. as far as I did. Yeah, because it's it's present there at the beginning. You might start watching it and go, "This is not at all what Shirley Jackson's novel is." This comes down to um, the, the adaptation thing, right? Like if you're looking for a direct adaptation, this isn't it. If you're looking for something that it. might sort of appeal to the same s- sort of stories, yeah. it's kind of it's got a lot going for it that I think is much much different, and it takes a lot of liberty. So you have to be okay with that. But you know, the yeah. spirit there is a spirit of the story that's still there. But like you said, Luke, it's not as much the like classic horror where it's kind of like slow moving and and some of the it's more subtle the shirley jackson's yeah. is more subtle yeah absolutely uh so i i say all of that with the caveat of like i'm of two minds about the show because part of me because i loved the book so much and it was my first real experience with i mean i guess i've seen the 90s adaptation but i don't remember it <laughs> um so my first real experience with this is this book and i and i i love it so much i was there's a little bit of frustration 
um, with how much it's being changed and how the horror feels kind of different. And um, but once I kind of got past that and I was able to like appreciate the show for what it is and what it's trying to do, that it is sort of an homage and and it seems like it's trying to honor what Shirley Jackson meant and 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 the power of this story while doing something different with it. Um, I came around and like, I, I definitely am having a good time. Um, and I, I think he does do great work with characters, which we'll get into and we'll talk about why, um, ultimately I'm coming around on the idea of like having the crane family all be there related and, and all that stuff. Like it, ultimately that change is paying big dividends as we go f- further into a story. And I'm realizing, well, he had to fill 10 episodes of television. This gives him lots of interpersonal drama. He can, he can mine here. Um, but one thing I, I do want to acknowledge too is, and, and it's hard for me to like put my finger on it, um, and it's hard for me to articulate it in a way that will probably be satisfying to people. Shirley Jackson's book feels like it's written by a woman, in a in a good way. It feels like she understands Eleanor intimately, and it feels like a a struggle of a woman who feels trapped in her life, and. Mike Flanagan's show doesn't feel that way to me. Um, and I'm not saying there aren't women who worked on the show. I'm sure there are. Um, but some of the characters who we spend a lot of time with are men. Um, you know, Steve has been sort of invented for the show. Luke uh, was in the book, but he's very different in the show. We spent a lot of time with them. Um, and in that sense, like, it, it just feels like less of a woman's story in the way that hunting of hill house very much is one and um i can see that frustrating people too if you're coming into it and you're like "Mm, what's going on here and and i would have liked to see an adaptation run like with a woman director who maybe has a really intimate connection with that part of the story now all that being said i'm a man so who am i to really judge it um it's just something that I, like, I I picked up on a little bit. Yeah, to agree with you, I when I was watching it, I distinctly felt that as well. Like I felt like there were certain times where I was like, I think it would have been done differently if it was you know showrun or directed by a woman woman at that yeah. point. And I, I, it doesn't. It's not anything. It's hard to put your finger on, right? Like what it is exactly. It's not anything outwardly like offensive that he's doing no. or anything. It just feels like a different touch would have been there. Yeah, it's just the the perspective, right? The perspective, it, it, it just can't quite be faked, <laughs> right? Um, there is something authentic to that. And um, it's a tricky subject. And, and you know, it's, uh, you know, a male writer who, who writes from women's POV sometimes in my stories, like I'm, I'm sensitive to that, you know, difficulty. And it's something that if you're going to write from someone's point of view outside of your own, you have to be cognizant of but the fact of the matter is you're just never going to be able to nail certain things in the way that someone who has that lived experience will and that that's okay it's not to say you can't tell a good story um but i you know i just wanted to to give voice to the idea that like there could be people who watch this and 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 feel like mike flanagan just doesn't get it in the way that they wish he did um and you know i'm i i'm sympathetic to that but all that being said what he's able to accomplish here, I think, is good and it's interesting in its own right. Um, there, there is some cool sort of acknowledgments of it. Um, it is at times a little heavy-handed. It is at times a little bit unsubtle, and um, I had a little bit of frustration with that. And and that reminded me of some of the stuff with Doctor Sleep. 
um, where it's a little bit on the nose, a little bit too directly going at things instead of coming at it from the sides. Um, and we can get into more specifics as we as we move through the episodes. But that, I guess that's my I, I have sort of a mixed feeling about the show. I am enjoying it. Um, I definitely am looking forward to finishing it. And, and maybe he'll, you know, land everything in a way that will make me happy. Um, but right now it's like I, I'm having to figure out how to watch the show so that I don't get frustrated with some of the dramatic changes from the book. Yeah. So I can totally understand where you're coming from with most of that stuff. Like the the ways that it's changed, if you're like going in and you're like, I want Shirley Jackson's work completely adapted, you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, one thing I, th- I do think is like people who are coming to this story, I think may even have ha- coming to the story without having read the book are coming to it with more open arms like you're gonna you're gonna allow this story to to take you on and i think in that case specifically people people are gonna respond to the show in a really positive way because i do think it's one of the the better horror shows that like you're gonna see right now um yeah and i you know i don't watch all the stuff that's out there so you know don't quote me on that necessarily but this is the type of horror show that i'm like this is this is so much fun to watch um and i it's it, like you said if you're looking for like a prestige drama horror like gothic that's not this it's not it's not like yeah. guillermo del toro's like um crimson peak something like that it's like strong shirley jackson vibes that's not in this okay. movie i haven't seen that but. um it's very like gothic very like mm-hmm. lots of shadowy figures and uh just the use of color and stuff in that movie that movie's amazing but i also i i enjoy this this story f- um because I think I saw this first, and like I said in our book coverage, I was able to like reverse engineer, because I that's why it was so fresh to me. Shirley Jackson's story yeah. was so fresh to me because it's completely different, and it but and Shirley Jackson's story while being, I think if you're hearing that by the way, there's a lot of thunder going on on my end right now. Yeah, so it's got kind that of, atmospheric thunder going on. Yeah, Love so <laughs> Shirley Jackson's story while uh, being much more like eloquent and like you said subtle. Uh, it does feel like the setup of, of an older story, if that makes sense. Like it feels like, yeah. okay, we're going to get some characters together and there's a science experiment going on and we're going to see how it goes. And and it goes to interesting places. And I, like I said, I love that book. This feels like something that's like, of course, a show has to be, it's got to be extended by a lot. And there's a lot of moving yeah. parts and like timeline stuff going on. Like we've talked about different timelines and the way that that threads together. So like Luke said, if you're looking for the direct adaptation, if you're that person, you're probably going to be let down. If you're open enough to like sort of go into a new experience and, and compare the two, I think there's a lot here. And I, I think there's a lot that I've that I've been enjoying even on a second viewing. And uh, I'd like to talk about some of the reasons why. Do you want to jump into Mike Flanagan and then we can get into some specifics with the episodes? Yeah, okay. definitely. Because I do feel like I feel like I need to defend some of the statements I've made so far. So but I'm yeah. going to save that for when we're into specifics. Yeah. So Mike Flanagan, we have talked about him before, but I'm just going to give a short bio again, uh, is an American filmmaker and partner with Intrepid Pictures. He is best known for his horror films, all of which he directed, wrote and edited, including Absentia, Oculus, Hush, Before I Wake, Ouija, Origin of Evil, Gerald's Game and Dr. Sleep. Flanagan also created, directed, produced, wrote and edited the Netflix supernatural horror series, The Haunting of Hill House. Based on Shirley Jackson's novel of the same name, he has also spearheaded the standalone second season titled The Haunting of Bly Manor, based on the horror novella The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. He is the showrunner of the upcoming Netflix horror series Midnight Mass and and The Midnight Club. Flanagan's work has attracted the praise of critics, 
and for his directing, focus on characters and themes rarely depicted in horror, and Stephen King, Quentin Tarantino, and William Friedkin, among others, have praised him. He's married to actress Kate Siegel, who has been featured in most of his work since Oculus. They also wrote the screen screenplay of Hush together. Uh, in this story... Oh, Siegel's uh, Theodora, right? Yeah, Siegel is Theodora. Um, and so that you know that's an interesting element too when thinking about like the performance and the director mm-hmm. and like the performance that the director is able to get because of that intimate relationship. It's always something interesting to note. Um, yeah. So Flanagan's early career, he's uh, his student films were more oriented towards melodrama. He later characterized them as unfit for public consumption, but said they were incredible learning experiences, which I think mm-hmm. is the case for most student films. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah, his first film directed after graduation, Ghosts of Hamilton Street, in two thousand three, was filmed in maryland and featured local actors flanagan originally intended for the oculus story to be told in a series of short films but he could not find the financing instead he shot the chap he shot the chapter that included a backstory and used that to demonstrate that he could direct a horror film the short proved popular at film festivals and producers were interested in developing the concept however they either wanted to shoot it as a found footage film or rejected flanagan's stipulation that he direct the feature-length adaptation Flanagan then directed Absentia in 2011, which was financed through a Kickstarter campaign in response to this rejection. Hmm. Made for $70,000 and filmed in his Glendale, California apartment, Absentia was released direct to video but gained popularity when Netflix when Netflix offered it on their streaming service. After the surprise success of Absentia, Flanagan returned to Oculus, which he again shopped around. Intrepid Pictures took an interest in the concept and agreed to let Flanagan direct. The feature version of Oculus was filmed in 2012 and was released theatrically by Relativity Media in 2014. And then that sort of started him on this rocket ship that we've talked about, where he went on to just create tons of horror and Stephen King adaptations. And Yeah. I, can, I think Stephen King uh, is a good match for him honestly with his style because a lot of king's stories are sort of big swing horror concepts that you know unlike shirley jackson are this kind of horror and i think uh especially when it when it's put on screen um if you're looking for a more uh faithful version of things like we kind of got with dr sleep um although there were some changes um I don't know. It, it, I think this style lends itself to King. So I, I can see I see why those two pair together pretty well. Yeah, they really do. And Stephen King is a fan of his work as well. Like we, yeah, and I can see that. Stated mm-hmm. basically at this point that he said that. Um, I do think that that's part of what we're picking up on with the differences between Shirley Jackson's story and this one, right? It's like he, he kind of excels at really deep dives on character um, with shirley jackson's story it seemed like that that story was like some of the characters were more archetypal but our main characters our main two characters had a lot of depth to them and and were interesting and different than than and i may have even mentioned that in the book episode that like they feel at first like they're archetypes and then eventually like develop into something more and i think that these characters that that are introduced in this version of hill house this this series version feels like you said like a like how grimy and gray the characters are in like a Stephen King story. Like they're like mm. they're you kind of hate like I, I don't know about you, but through five episodes, Stephen, the brother Stephen kind of sucks. Like, yeah, he's lot. he's like the worst. <laughs> yeah, it, it. Yeah, I do have to also point out like uh, 
so Luke is my name, obviously. And then there's an older brother named Steven, which my older brother's name is Steven. So it's a little weird <laughs> just yeah. how many ties. I was like expecting one of the sisters to be Caitlin. Like, it's yeah, right. a little weird. <laughs> I mean, I definitely thought about that as well. Because how, <laughs> how could you not? Uh, they definitely tapped into some of your story, I think, for the Crane family here. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the similarities basically end at the name. But yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's it's yeah, it's pretty funny. It, we'll, we'll get more into these characters, but Steven's a writer as well. So, and like, of course, anytime yep. there's a writer in a story, there's a lot being said by the creators, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's weird too, because he has written a book called The Hunting of Hill House, which yep. um, he then reads from at the beginning, the opening of the, the first episode. He, he, he reads the opening of the book, which I didn't realize, you know, like last week when I read the opening paragraph of the book, it's a little different though. There's like a, there's like a small change um, in some of the lines, which like, if you're going to read it verbatim, like, why not just read it verbatim? I don't know. Um, but um, it felt a little weird to me to have this male author stand in, read, like, be reading from his book and have it be the exact words. Like, I know it's a way to get the words in the episode, which clearly he wanted to do because um, he must love that opening as much as I do. But I don't know. It just it felt a little odd to have have this uh this guy be the the author of this it's a famous like like queen of horror basically like her work co-opted by some some fictional male character right it feels yeah. weird in, in and of itself i think uh i don't know we'll, we'll talk more about it into these episodes do you want to jump into those now yeah i think i'm ready man you can tell i'm chomping at the bit a little bit but yeah that's cool i mean flanagan definitely seems like he's you know got this niche carved out in horror and and it's working for him, you know? Humble beginnings, right? He's turned down. Yeah. He's doing student films that then turn into short films, and he wanted to do multiple chapters, and he's not going the traditional route. And then he gets a Kickstarter going to get his first film made, and then it does well enough on Netflix that he gets a chance to make Oculus, like the actual feature-length film. Like, yeah. That's, uh, that's a you know, he's out there doing everything he can to, to make his mark, and I think that it's paying off in major ways when you direct the sequel to Stanley Kubrick and the adaptation of Stephen King's Doctor Sleep you know sequel yeah. to kubrick's the shining i don't know that that honestly that's it's still hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that like he, he adapted that and like there were things that i when you mentioned earlier we were mixed on it we're mixed in the way that like at least i am it's def i'm definitely mixed because the highs were really high in that movie but then there were some mm. th some things that just did not work really and it didn't come together as like a fully formed story as much as the book felt like it did yeah uh, my my ultimate I mean, I don't know. I'm just going to point people towards that episode. I don't want to rehash it here because I'm going off a of memory of something I saw over a year ago. So, yeah. Yeah. Listen to that. All right. Episode. So episode one is called Stephen Sees a Ghost. Stephen is an author known for The Haunting of Hill House, an autobiographical novel about his childhood experience while residing in the haunted mansion with parents Hugh and Olivia and younger siblings Shirley, Theo, Nell, and Luke. During their stay, the cranes encountered paranormal occurrences and are forced to flee without Olivia, who dies within the house, traumatizing the rest of the family. Years later, Stephen used his tra family's traumatic experiences to write his book, straining the bonds with his siblings. Although it became a bestseller, he missed most of the frightening experiences and does not actually believe in the paranormal. Stephen and Shirley miss calls from Nell, who then calls Hugh and expresses concern for Luke, who has become a drug addict. When Stephen returns home, he finds Nell standing there. He receives a call from Hugh informing him that Nell went to Hill House and is dead. Stephen realizes that Nell is a ghost. So I was shocked 
Eleanor dies in the first episode. I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I feel better about it um, with, with what we get to later. I guess we're, we're in full spoilers for the first five episodes at this point, right? Like, I think we need to be, yeah. Okay, so I will, yeah. So like in the fifth episode, it's very focused on Eleanor and we get more of what happened with her. Um, and that, that helped me a little bit, but I was frustrated to see Eleanor die. And I was like, well, are they going to make someone else basically into Eleanor? Like it's her story and they've killed her and they've seemed to have replaced her with, you know, this guy, you know what I mean? It's like, you can see some of my frustrations there. It's also a great like sort of loss because she, Victoria Pedretti, uh, was I think really likable, you know, right away, mm-hmm. youngest sibling, the baby of the family, and some of the stuff that goes on. You, we attach to this character, and we know from reading the book that this is the kind of the main character, and we're yeah. learning about at least kind of a little bit in this first episode that like some of these these kids have like specific, um, almost powers kind of sensitivities sensitivities yeah Yeah. which which is something that's kind of set up with shirley jackson's story we talked about last week um the possibility of like people being sensitive to the house um we just with this first episode a couple things i wanted to note i think that this story this this version of this story really goes there i think that you know like killing a character early on like this and not even just that but like there's a lot there's a lot of stuff where like if you're not comfortable seeing like autopsies and like just things that are hard to look at and just death well, i think the autopsy happens next episode right later yeah i just i'm just yeah. more generally early right on now. in like, the show yeah it's it's like there, it, it kind of could be a tough thing to if you're not like a horror fan necessarily or if you don't like that stuff in your stories there's a lot of death talked about now, a lot of like heavy stuff goes on in the story and that's a tough heavy, thing yeah. to to sort of have in a lighter story like this um and i think that that's part of it is like it's not really a light story at that point there's a lot of like yeah as i was gonna say i don't i don't i wouldn't call this light i'd call this very heavy but um and, and it is like you you it feels oppressive uh flanagan seems to really like a certain i think it's color correcting is that tell me, correct me if I'm wrong? Yeah, or yeah, just it's, color. It's, yeah, it, there's filters and and, there's, and yeah, you there's, can use the, in cameras as well. Yeah, so like every every scene viewed blue. through some sort of filter, it's kind of bluish, kind of co- it tends to be it tends to be cold, um, has a cold feel to it, um, and and that lends a certain oppressiveness to it. And I remember that look was in Doctor Sleep too, so it seems to be just like how he likes how he likes things to look, and and that's cool. Like I know mm-hmm. what. Uh, uh what's his name from uh david fincher he kind of has a certain look to all of his films too you know mm-hmm. is it, it, a certain feel to the camera um and here you know it lends to that oppressiveness and in that same way like things are going wrong left and right everything that can go wrong is going wrong it feels like mm-hmm. um but yeah i, I do want to touch a little bit on this uh what you were talking about like the big the, like uh we see we see uh the bent neck lady right at the start um, she kind of comes swooping in a little bit. We don't we don't get a great look at her, but and then we see um, we see the dark figure over over Nell at one point. We see um, I think we see Nell dancing in the house. We see like a flash of her dancing and like through the house, and she's wearing this gown, and you know it's all old and 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 covered in vines and cobwebs. Um, so there's a lot of these like I don't know, just very Halloween like big scares, big, you know, you're seeing, you know, someone opens their mouth and screams and their eyes turn white and you see all these veins. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's like, it's, it's very, 
it's I don't know, like uh, it's unsubtle, right? It's it's just like yeah, Theatrical, here's your big yeah. scare, Theatrical, yeah, yeah. And that's cool. Like I I get that. And I think this show came out around Halloween, the year it came out. I want to say I remember it was a lot of people were watching it in October or something like that, and and really enjoying it for the Halloween season. And I think that's like perfect for this because it does have that vibe. And we talked about with like Sleepy Hollow, there's a certain aesthetic to that that was very well, Halloween. But those things that you're saying, which is why I kind of mentioned like that's those are normally associated with a light story. And then this has got some heavy topics and some heavier things yeah. going on within the context of the story. So that's why I'm, that's yeah. why I mentioned like it feels like something that's like a lighter sort of story. And then it has like much heavier topics that kind of weigh on you, honestly. Right, yeah, especially when we get into, like, I think next episode. But um, it starts getting really heavy with the topics. But, like, the mother commits suicide, we hear. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of death. And then we see Nell die at the end of the episode. And she's you know, appears as this ghost. And one thing I um, that helped me connect with this story as as I progressed through was starting to view it in the same way that I viewed Dr. Sleep. And that is almost more of a dark fantasy, at at least at times, um, because there is almost like, okay, there's a spirit realm. Okay, there's, you know, ghosts are a thing and they behave in this way. And, you know, people have sensitivities and those sensitivities almost give them a magical connection to the supernatural. Yeah. And like once I started sort of buying into that like dark fantasy element of it, um, it's, it doesn't make it scarier. But it gives me something to be interested in in the show, um, mm-hmm. and in that in that sense, like I'm kind of rooting for this family, and I'm you know I'm, I'm interested in Theodora, who seems to have these you know almost powers um, when it comes to this stuff, and you know the sensitivities of these different kids, and um, this feels to me like uh, I don't want to theorize because I, you know the answers, and I can see your face right now. So I, well, I do yeah. want you to theorize uh, okay. at some point. I, I want to hear some thoughts on where you think it's going. Okay. Well, I just right now, like it, this feels like a confrontation between the family and the house is going to happen is the sense I'm getting. And it feels to me like he's, he's laying the groundwork for some sort of, um, way in which the family can actually best Hill house and defeat Hill house. And if that, I, I don't don't give me any indication. I won't even look at you. But if that ends up happening, I'm going to be frustrated because to me, Hill House doesn't feel like an entity that should be able to be defeated. Um, now, maybe they'll try to and fail. That's definitely a possibility, too. Um, but I, I almost don't even like that angle because in the book, like Hill House is inescapable. It's inevitable. You Once you're there, you're trapped. It's not something you can fight. All you can try and do is escape. Um, so the idea that he might be laying the groundwork for some sort of big supernatural confrontation between people and house, I, I just don't know if I like that direction as a fan of the Furley, Shirley Jackson novel for the show, which has got a little bit more of that dark fantasy element. It's longer. It's more episodes. Maybe you feel like you need to like deliver in, in a certain way in an arc that's going to be more satisfying to a viewer. I can see it going that way. Um, I'm not saying I'll hate it and, and maybe I'll end up loving it and, or at least enjoying it for what it is. Um, but it just, it, it feels a little bit odd and all of that's just theorizing and I'm not looking at James, so I don't know. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, we got to move on. <laughs> we, we talked about some of the characters, but it seems like as, as these episodes go on, all of these characters have some sort of interesting angle. And I thought that that was another strong decision that was made was each of these first five episodes, at least really focus in on one of the, each of the children within the story. 
Um, the first episode being about Steven, the second episode being about Shirley, the third episode being about Theo and like and on and then Luke and then and then Nell. And I thought that was really fun because like you mentioned, Luke, uh, one thing you mentioned from the book was that uh, we get a little bit of time with the char- each of the characters before we go to Hill House and like yeah. we get to see them in their own environments and stuff. And I felt like that was sort of an, a way of doing that same kind of thing while setting up these characters. Um and I think, you know, other than Steven, I think each of them has like an interesting angle for what's going on with dealing with their traumas, because ultimately that's kind of what the angle of this show takes is like well, even Steven does, too, because he's in denial. Right. He, he definitely is. But but what I mean is that he like his connection to the paranormal is like not as existent right now because mm-hmm. he's kind of not he, he like doesn't like believe in it or something like he's like almost yeah. removed from it. He, he actually is more similar to Luke in the book than the Luke that we get in the show Um, because Luke in the book also didn't really have much of a connection to the supernatural. He didn't experience a lot of the stuff, not nothing, but not just a lot of the stuff he didn't experience Um, in in that way. Steven, Steven in the show reminds me of that. Yeah. So I I guess to dig into the episode itself a little bit more, what did you think about Steven going to this house and visiting with this, this grieving, this, this um, widow and, and like sort of her story and the ghost, that whole angle to that. I mean, I I, I like it. Okay. You know, I like that he's sort of going to be sort of the rational one. He kind of is taking on the role of Dr. Montague a little bit. And I know we, we are introduced to Dr. Montague in the fifth episode. Um, At least so far feels like a shadow of the character in the book. Um, I, I, it seems to me that Steven is is taking on more of that role of being the sort of clear-headed, rational type um, who is who has, like, studied paranormal stuff clearly through his writing of these novels and has opinions. Um, and him showing up at the house and, like, setting up this test and he's got the science equipment, right, like the, the heat sensors and he's going to record himself, that feels very much like Dr. Montague, even though we didn't get those specific details. It seems like the kind of thing he would do. Um, and then, yeah, like the, his, he, he finds an explanation, you know, the car horn, he, he finds the leak in the, in the ceiling. I do like that later on, um, when we get to Nell's episode, the night terrors, you know, it's a real world phenomenon. So I love it when you're taking supernatural phenomena and tying it to real world phenomena. That's something that Stephen King does very, very well. And a lot of horrors, horror writers do. Um, and I, I like it when you start to do that here. I don't think anyone who's watching this show is ever fooled into wondering like i don't think anyone's watching the show like hmm, i wonder if anything supernatural is actually happening <laughs> no like it is like i think the show is like clearly pressing its thumb on that side of like yes yeah, supernatural shit's happening but there are there's just enough people who are willing to convince themselves it's, it's not it's not playing a game of like is it or isn't it we'll leave it up to you the viewer to decide it's not interested in playing that game yeah. in my opinion I, I think another strong decision that i've really enjoyed especially rewatching, is the introduction of like their mother the role that she plays within this house that they've bought that they're trying to flip and that's the whole premise of yeah uh, the the past at least uh story of the family yeah olivia crane is the character yeah olivia crane and the way that of course like nurture is going to shape a person and like, you mm-hmm. know, trauma, these things do shape people. But it's interesting how how closely in this story, like anything that goes on with the mother, like com- like dr- has huge implications for the characters like going mm-hmm. forward. And in, um, in, in a very direct line, like she says something and then you see that exact thing in the future, you know, like it, it, again, like it's it's both like a I think it's a strength in the sense that it's broadly accessible 
and I do think it's a bit of a weakness in the sense that it's not very subtle. It's it's very direct on the nose. But one of the things that I do think that it does well is set up the whole mystery of the story of like what happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. What happened that night and where are we going with yeah, that? Yeah, we, we still don't know at this point at least. Yeah, exactly. And how each each child dealt with that or, mm-hmm. or what they saw, what they think they saw in the house at that at that time period. So that was another thing I wanted to shout out. Um, episode two is called Open Casket. In childhood flashbacks at Hill House, Shirley encounters a box of abandoned kittens and takes them in. However, the kittens all end up dying, which deeply affects Shirley, who obsesses over why she couldn't fix them. Later, during Olivia's funeral, an initially distraught Shirley is in awe that the mortician was able to fix her mother to return her previous beauty. As an adult, Shirley is a mortician who owns a funeral business alongside her husband, Kevin, and rents a guest house to Theo, who is now a child therapist. Shirley is informed of Nell's death. Distraught, she decides to embalm and fix her sister herself. However, while doing so, she encounters her mother's ghost. Fucking horrifying. That really, really, really not okay. The idea of embalming your own sibling. Yeah. Uh, I lots of characters try and talk her out of it, but she insists on doing it. I do like like this is where I was starting to go like okay, I do like this character, um, this deep dive into character that we're gonna get here, and I like the idea of like each episode focusing more on one of the one of the siblings. Um, this is Shirley's episode, which which is interesting that clearly her name is a reference um, to to Shirley Jackson. So I like that. Um, yeah. And I also noticed, I don't know if you saw in this episode, uh, Theo at one point is reading, kid, I saw, reading yeah. yeah, is reading the lottery by Shirley yep. Jackson. So, you know, seeding in some, some cool uh, references, some, something that I didn't see the first time, but now that, you know, I was yeah. kind of on the lookout and then saw it, I was like, Holy shit, the lottery. We just yeah. talked about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is what I was talking about with like I it when I, earlier in the episode when I said that this show is like going for it and makes big yeah. swings. I'm not talking about the horror aspects necessarily. I'm talking about the sister wanting to embalm her own sibling. Yeah, I would the, say in every way it takes big swings. Yeah, you know, well, it's just going for it. Yeah, and then the like a, a later episode we're getting like some stuff that goes on with like child like pedophiles and and yeah. like child abuse and and some and like. Like this show goes to some crazy places and deals with some really heavy topics and in honestly in some really fascinating ways. And like as much as it was like tough for me to watch Shirley like perform like a embalming on her sister. Yeah. It was also like, holy shit, like where is this character going? Like what Mm. what, like what is this character capable of? Why? You know, a lot of things are, are running through my head while seeing someone do something like that and just how in control she has to be. Yeah, and God, what a what a dark backstory here because the the whole thing with the finding of the five kittens, um, these little, you know, babies, and then uh, you know, it, it, there's even like a Game of Thrones moment where uh, I think they say like, oh, there's five kittens for the five of us, and I'm like, oh God, <laughs> yeah. and then they all die in horrific ways. They all turn ways. into dire cats that that they yeah. sort of have as companions forever. Yeah, uh, I was like, oh no, um, and then uh, yeah, I mean, the, and then the, we get this this flashback to seeing the mother's open casket, and then she's talking to the mortician at the end, and, and finds out that he's the one who fixed her. And we get the implication that, well, that's why she does the thing that she does now. I actually found out that that's Mike Flanagan's brother that played the really? mortician. Yeah. Nice. So just a little, little Easter egg. <laughs> How about that? Um, and I do ultimately like that. You know, like uh, it is very direct. Like this is the thing that happened. And now I do this exact thing is what my, you know, my living. But that's fine. I think here it works well. And it's a dark enough, weird enough thing to do 
that it does need an explanation. Like we want to know why. Yeah. Um, so it begs the did question. You, did you really find yourself just being like, man, that is a job that I would never do? Because yes. I, I could like, never do it. Never, never ever could I do it. Mm-hmm. And it's also a weird ritualistic thing that we've done forever. And, you know, oh, some it's people, super weird, man. The whole embalming process. It's such a weird thing. Very bizarre. It's so bizarre. Very bizarre. Yeah. But um, yeah. And uh, troubling. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's also like the moment with the, the kitten has a bug in its mouth, the dead kitten. And then there's mm-hmm. a bug. And then there's these eyes that are white and these are big horror moments, right? You know what I mean? Like it it is a lot and um, it's scary. I mean, it's the kind of visuals that are going to stick with you, you know? And then that's, that's mirrored in the, in the present where we see the, the bug come out of uh, Nell's mouth while she's on the table. Um, And then, you know, we kept expecting Nell to set up or or something at some point. I'm glad that he didn't actually go there because that would have been way too obvious, I think. Um, We did get the bug scare, but then it's more the mother is is on the next, you know, rack over, I guess. And she's the one who sits up. So a little bit of a surprise there, I guess. I I am going to want to hear sort of what you think went on that night and what you think is ultimately going to happen. I know you said a little bit of it, but think about this stuff as we're going through these last three episodes and then let me know at the end. But this episode three is called Touch. Theo is able to perceive feelings from people and impressions from objects when she touches them with bare hands. Child Luke encounters a ghost that attacks him and is upset that no one believes him. Theo investigates for him and finds a hidden door leading to the basement. Olivia reveals to her that her grandmother was sensitive just like her and gives Theo a pair of gloves to protect her hands. At her job, Theo comes across a child that she can't read, who claims to be tormented by Mr. Smiley, a monster. Theo goes to the girl's house and discovers the truth through her touch. The girl's foster dad was molesting her and her and Mr. Smiley was a manifestation of the abuse. Theo gets the foster dad arrested. She she goes to the morgue and touches Nell's forehead before collapsing and screaming. A flashback to their last night in Hill House reveals that when Hugh grabbed Theo as they were trying to flee, Theo saw disturbing images of ghosts and Olivia being pushed. Yeah, uh, this episode is is a weird one. Um, I I do love a lot about it, but there are also things I didn't like about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is where I really had to sort of change the way I was viewing the show a little bit to go like, okay, we're going, we're leaning into sort of a di- dark fantasy vibe here because Theo is magical in this show, um, yeah. and it's it's not subtle about it. Um, you know. She has these gloves that she very deliberately takes off and places her hands on thing and then is immediately struck with visions, mm-hmm. whatever it is she's touching. She knows things she shouldn't be able to know. And this is happening both in the present and in the past. It feels like eerily like a shine, right? Like something that but, but even less subtle than the shining, right? Like it's it's very direct. Like it's it's a, my hands are gloved and I'm going to take them off and touch things and then I'm going to, you know. It, but it is it is similar. I mean, like the shine, you can you can like communicate with people who also have the shine. Like there's like direct abilities that the shine gives you and stuff. To yeah, do it. yeah. She can read anybody and anything apparently. She can just touch like an area and, and feel its like history. It's pretty and stuff. pretty powerful. I'm not gonna lie. Very yeah. Um, I, I also I gotta say at the beginning of the episode, someone like wraps her arm around her in bed and she like clutches the hand and then um she turns around and no one's there and then she says out loud whose hand was I holding? And I was like, okay, like this is clearly a reference to what happens in the book, but it's a situation where it's almost overdone. Like right. you wouldn't say that like out loud to an empty room. Mm-hmm. You would just think that. And it's implied right. that she is already struggling with this fear. But to say it out loud again, it's like, I just wish I could 
like tone it like in certain moments tone it back a little yeah. bit there's something to be said and i i end up doing this a lot giving the benefit of the doubt but there's something to be said for the fact that like there are people that aren't going to be that perceptive that aren't going to pick up on these things and i think some filmmakers and some studios will push for things like that where it's like yeah but in this situation in this situation i mean you feel someone's hand you're holding it you turn around there's no one there you freak out and sit up in your bed you can just have that Do you need to say out loud exactly whose hand was i holding <laughs> i agree i agree yeah i'm sorry so just little moments like that every now and then but you know, yeah this child that she's dealing with who builds walls around her and she's such she's just this brick wall that keeps everybody out to protect her like it's so directly a like uh, a mirror right like a you know she's looking at herself as a kid um also did you how how'd you feel about that moment where um she wakes up in the middle of the night and she looks down at the foot of her bed and there's a giant scary smiley monster with a loud noise that looks at her that's not a jump scare right (laughs) there's a lot of that stuff happening in this show for sure I mean, it's a it's a fine moment. I just don't like the idea that it's not a jump scare. Like, let's just admit that that's what. No, that is. I, and I don't think honestly, I don't think Mike Flanagan's the guy who's going around saying like I don't do jump scares. I think other people may have been putting that on him at yeah, some okay. points or another. You know, uh, that's fair. But, so I shouldn't hold him hold it against him. Yeah, because he's not the one making those claims. The Mister Smiley thing. Uh, that that stuff feel. That's why I mentioned like early two thousands sort of like blockbustery horror films. We and like there's I think there's a place for both in this. Obviously. But yeah. like that, that moment is like a sheer like, all right, how long has it been since our last scare? All right, plug that, plug this in real quick. Yeah. And, and yeah, it does feel like it. And, and the show does that a lot. Like, like yeah. I said, like the, the car is almost colliding when Steven's like, when Steve is like doing the investigation in the first episode, like these jump scares that go to like a nightclub and it's just like loud out of nowhere. And you're like, whoa, yeah. Jesus, we were just in a bedroom in the middle of the night. Like it, it. It, those those jump scares are I don't know unnecessary, but it does keep like you on your toes, I guess, keeps you mm-hmm. on edge. Well, and um, with with Theo in particular, I think this is my the character that I I, I feel I don't know is it, sort of rounded out in the the least effective way. Like uh, there's something about her powers and her, especially as a child. She has sort of a flat affect as she walks around and, and when she's talking to the adult characters, like she's trying to be mysterious because she knows things. And it feels a little bit like they didn't know how to write the character in a way that felt human because it's dealing with something that's very inhuman. Um, so I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what the what my criticism amounts to other than. Um, I, I like the deep character studies we get on a lot of the other siblings, but the, with Theo in particular, I just, I just didn't feel as strongly connected to it. Yeah. I, I mean, like I can understand also her struggling with like intimacy because of the touching thing. Like that's yeah. clearly something that's, 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 uh, shown. Um, I want to give a shout out to this episode too, just for the fact that like, while I, under, I agree with some of the stuff that you're saying with the powers seeming kind of like really, really power too powerful. I did think that the payoff of this episode was, was really interesting. And I thought that like, you know going to a place of like her saving a child who is in a similar situation to her in in certain ways but then also dealing with the fact of like this child molester and like going and using her powers to see something like that that stuff was scary in just in general like like and the smiley face reveal of the of the ceiling was also just like a nice touch because i didn't know where the smiley face thing was going to go when i first saw the show I agree. I actually really like that it wasn't an actual monster. It, it was a manifestation of this child's 
uh, you know, uh, trauma, right, has been has right. manifested as a monster, and that monster, through her power, is able to ev- like physically manifest in in Theo's bedroom. So it shows that there's like a that's why she's haunted by this and tortured by this power. Yeah. Um, if that kind of shit's gonna happen, and the thing that that you were saying before, like the like the the way that they felt like they didn't have a great grasp on like a young theo and how like she would re- interact with the world that yeah the the smiley face just out of the the wood grain feels like something very real like it feels almost like something that actually did happen because it would be like children children like will will you know change things in their mind to cope with things in that mm-hmm. way and like seeing something on the ceiling and seeing a smiley face out of it like terror i mean just horrible stuff it's just yeah. and, and like it's it's effective and it felt like something like I said that was real. I do want to talk about the dumbwaiter scene for a minute. Yeah. Um. So the dumbwaiter scene is interesting because elevators are terrifying a little bit in general. <laughs> I got, I recently got stuck in one uh for about forty five minutes, which you know it was fine. It wasn't it wasn't as scary as it sounds. Um. It wasn't that long in the in the scheme of things. But one of the scariest things about it is when an elevator starts malfunctioning. Um, and I start imagining it falling is like the idea of being cut in half or being, you know, crushed in some way. And so when I saw Luke in the dumbwaiter, <laughs> she walks in and sees him. Like I had a visceral reaction of just like recoiling, like get this kid the fuck yeah. out of there. So the and character Luke was in a little dumbwaiter is what you're saying. I was so like, oh, like, get him out of there. Get him out of there. Yeah. And then she's like, oh, yeah, I guess this is OK. She looks at the 200 pound thing as if that's going to be fine. Um, yeah. and, and there, and where it goes is scary. You know, he ends up getting sent down to the, to the basement and he sees this like crawling zombie looking thing come at him. And then it pulls, she, they end up pulling him back up just in time. Although he gets his shirt ripped a little bit. That's, that is spooky, but ultimately that's not the thing that terrifies me about elevators. And it's not mm-hmm. the thing that terrified me about that situation. Um, so it almost felt like a missed opportunity to do something that would have been even more visceral to me. Yeah. The scariest part about it was when he was on his way down and he's screaming up and she's screaming down, not when he gets down to the bottom portion and he's stuck down there and something's crawling out. Right. Like yeah. it's like the, un- as he's heading down to the unknown, will he get out? What's he going yeah. down to? Is it going to get the hurt? idea of like it getting stuck or it falling or him getting injured and breaking his arm or getting some, you know what I mean? Like something getting trapped, like a caught, because that's the real danger is you're going to get something caught. Like there's all kinds of bad shit that can happen with that. I mean, dumb waiters aren't much of a thing anymore because they were so dangerous. <laughs> it was like yeah. one of the reasons why they for children using specifically, them. right? Like, yeah. Because of kids would do that. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of behind the scenes things that I wanted to talk about. So the overall vibe of this show is like something's lurking around every corner. There's something's in the shadows. They actually did that though. I don't know how much of that you've picked up on They're Like in wide shots of it, Hill house and other locations they're they're like put there's actual ghosts like in the backgrounds. I don't know if you like they keep yeah. putting in. Uh, I like thought from- I've seen things before, but like I, I, I would, I, I, um, I would like to like see the, the, you yeah, know, actual evidence of that because I, I I felt like stuff like that might have been happening. I do like the idea of that. That's cool. Yeah, it, it's like apparently there was like two hundred. I mean, of course, I haven't seen all of them and don't know where they all are. But from what I understand, there's like two hundred, like either uh, visual effects or like complete CG effects of like of them putting ghosts in the background, like hands in places. Like li- like at one point, there's like a little girl who like pokes her head out and pokes it back quickly and stuff like just stuff like that in in Hill House and in other areas like to add yeah. to the the ghosts that are throughout. 
Um, so I thought that's something interesting to, to look well, for. Well, I mean, some of them are pretty obvious. I assume you're talking about ones that are not obvious. Like that they're are, not that obvious, are almost, no. They're, they're not like hidden. the direct. Okay. There might be a ghost that's like the bent neck or the guy with the bowler hat, something like that. Those are not what I'm talking about with the hands okay. and stuff. Yeah. I'm talking about like in the background, there's a bunch of Easter egg ghosts. Okay. Um, it was creator, director Mike Flanagan's plan from the beginning to set up these kinds of little Easter eggs and see if people could spot them. While working on the primary prosthetic makeups for the show each day, the makeup team would also produce up to four of the hidden ghosts as well for Flanagan to pepper in the shadows. That's cool. Yeah, I'll have, yeah. To, I'll have to watch a breakdown on that or something and see which ones I, I recognize and which ones I don't. Yeah, I'll, I'll be on the lookout Keep even more out for them now. Yeah, for more that of sounds them. sounds good. Um, and then also, I, I you you kind of talked about one of these so i assume you kind of were picking up on it but each child represents a different stage of grief oh um, i didn't i didn't so know that. so steven representing denial mm. shirley representing anger theo representing bargaining luke representing depression and nell representing acceptance um okay so i i would also keep that in mind going forward and see what you think of that as like a theory i, I mm. you know it seems like something that that i believe so we'll see because it does seem like each of these characters you said steve right away that that he sort of represents denial so you were picking yeah. up on at least one of those yeah yeah, that makes sense they're definitely all coping in different ways and and, and uh if i had really start to you know define each way I, I maybe would have come around to that stages of yeah grief or whatever one of the only other things i wanted to i would be so remiss if i didn't mention this but um the actor who played the father who played young q crane uh is henry thomas who is the young boy from E.T. If you why does know. why does uh why does he turn into a different person when he gets older? <laughs> that's what I was gonna that's something I was gonna talk about too. Um so they had the younger Hugh Crane as Henry Thomas, which I think just the the idea of having young Henry Thomas from E.T. is is like, I, I haven't seen him in a ton of stuff, so I think that's great. God, that is that's yeah, I, I didn't recognize him. One of the main reasons I want to bring him up, though, is because his the, the contacts that he's wearing are I, I, oh my so, God. Distracting. so distracting. So distracting. I, I wrote it. I was like, I am 100% convinced he's wearing contacts to yes. make his eyes like a certain shade of blue, I guess, to line up with the later actor. Yeah, um, that's what I thought as well. But I found this. Um, he wore blue contacts throughout the entire season. The elder Hugh Crane has gray eyes. Hugh enters Hill House, a wide-eyed house flipper who never faced a problem he couldn't fix. As time passes, though... Uh, Thomas's bright blue eyes turn into Hutton's steely gray as the elder crane has pulled himself away from his children and the events that haunt him to this day. And, so, as, as he turns into a completely different man. <laughs> a different person, yeah. I don't understand the, the, the reason for the contacts. They were way more distracting than they needed I to mean, be. I mean, like, um, why don't you just have the same actor play him in both time? Just do, like, to color his hair. Like, that's all you really need to do. Like, I don't know weird but okay and i like both actors i like both of them so far i mean we haven't seen a bunch out of timothy hutton but what we have i've liked but it's weird because it seems like a different person whenever i see that so yeah i mean maybe that's intentional that you know like they wanted you to feel that way because he kind of is a different i'm person. sure they'd say know. it's intentional but exactly that yeah. i like the, what the intention is i'm not sure i like it so uh episode four is called the twin thing Child Luke is frustrated as his family never believes him about the ghosts he sees, including his imaginary friend, Abigail. Luke claims a bowler hat his mother finds in the attic and wears it. Present Luke is now 90 days clean. Since birth, Luke and Nell are able to, f to feel the other's physical ailments. Luke's best friend in rehab, Joey, flees to get high and Luke follows to get her back. Child Luke encounters the ghosts of an abnormally tall man that comes to get his bowler hat back from him. Luke finds Joey, but begins feeling unnaturally cold and stiff. 
Lacking money for a place to stay, Luke breaks into Steve's apartment to steal items to sell, but is caught by Steve, who gives him money. Joey steals the money and flees, and Luke is mugged, leaving him wandering with the hatted ghost following him. Luke calls his caseworker, and she and Steve find him and inform him that Nell committed suicide. Realizing he has been feeling Nell in death all this time, Luke states it wasn't suicide. Yeah, uh, this episode was perhaps my favorite um, yeah, I think it's my favorite, yeah. Of, of these five. Uh, it's very yeah, good. Of these five. Um, uh, I do actually really like the following episode, too. But um, he, I, I think Mike Flanagan, obviously, with this episode and with what we saw go on in Dr. Sleep, he does a good job with um, addicts and, it, 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 you know, sort of the, the, the monster of addiction and the struggle of that now I, it's not something I, I i've never gone to rehab i've never like experienced it in that way but um it, it's just something that feels if not 100 percent authentic it just it feels powerful and it feels convincing and he, i like the way he approaches it with empathy and um while showing how fucked up it is and how um he, he's at the same time making us feel really sorry for luke um, but also he does a good job of showing all the ways in which Luke has let people down and, mm-hmm. you know, violated trust. And, um, I don't know. I just, I just like that handling of this, this very hub- heavy subject matter. Um, you know, maybe, maybe people have been through it would disagree. I don't know. Um, I, I like the connection with this Joey character. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I feel for Luke here and I, I think he's, he's a character that is, you know, really struggling um and he turned to substance to try and uh you know wash away the the fear and the pain and everything he has associated with his childhood and that is something we see a lot of people who have ptsd and traumatic experiences do um so i mean i think that's all really interesting and then you pair that with this floating tall man with the cane that extends to the ground and i'm like you know that's a, just a cool idea. I, I liked it. I, you know, <laughs> him clicking around and his feet are hovering like flat, yet he's using the cane as he's like walking. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. super weird and, and mm-hmm. off-putting and I, I loved it. I, that was great. And then, yeah. yeah, he keeps appearing in the background, like, but always facing away. And then at one point when Luke's walking and he's like hovering closer and closer and closer, that was, that was pretty scary. For sure. Uh, this episode works really well for me as well. I, I think that it, in showing how he's like coping eventually by using uh it endears him us to him more because it's like he is again in the same similar situation everything that happened in hill house draws a straight line to like where he's at currently and a lot of these you know you think of this family all of these characters in the family in a different scenario not in hill house and thinking about like how their life goes um it's definitely probably very different and um I think that Luke as a character, you know, it's not just that he's like an addict and then he is in is in the program. He's also trying to help someone else who's helped him before. And I think that 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 whole section where he's and just the struggle and like the inevitability of the things that that are happening to him with his friend who he's trying to help and and how like he is in some ways dealing with things that his family's had to deal with with himself you know i think that all of those are really strong uh things to hang a care for a character you know like to to have a great fleshed out character and and his motivation is very clear and then one of the best things in my opinion is his like 
supernatural abilities to to always know what's going on with Nell and like they he tells a story about her breaking his ankle and then she feels it and to an extreme degree and then when he starts to get cold did you did you know obviously that it was like the Nell stuff or was it like yeah I mean I figured it was the Nell stuff I didn't make the connection to like she's dead now and that's why right. he's feeling like stiff and I should have maybe when, when he said the word stiff like I should have thought of that more I remember that realization being like hitting me like a ton of bricks yeah. too being a good like, reveal wow, the twin that he's so connected to and like he feels so he feels like he's dying too like just great yeah. reveal um, yeah I agree good stuff I wanted to also mention the bowler hat uh mm-hmm. man's costuming because I did find some stuff about that Okay, I have to say that hat made me think of Rose the Hat. I know it's a slightly different kind of hat, uh-huh. but when I saw it, I, I don't know. I just immediately thought of Rose the Hat. Like it's very, it's kind of similar. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, so apparently the actor would be outfitted with arm and leg extensions. The arm extensions were two feet long and would strap on underneath the actor's wardrobe. Hand grips were provided that allowed Steer the actor to move the hands back and forth. Magnets were used in the hands so that the bowler hat man could hold his cane. For the disturbing scene when the bowler hat man peers underneath a bed, an additional actor would perform the ghost's legs in the background. Finally, the floating gag would be achieved with wire rigs provided by the show's stunt team. So just like interesting to think about, like I just love seeing certain shots and then knowing how they're how they're actually practically created practically. He's not just a big floating CGI dude. Yeah, which makes it way more convincing. Yeah, it's really cool. It works. It works nicely. But uh, I think we should jump into this last episode. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so the bent neck lady. Child Nell is tormented by an apparition she calls the bent neck lady, a ghost with a broken neck. Adult Nell sees a sleep technologist, Arthur, for sleep paralysis. The two fall in love and marry. Arthur tragically suffers a brain aneurysm and dies, and the bent neck lady returns. Nell begins to use her medication less and less. In her broken state and convinced by her therapist that Hill House is just a carcass of a house and not the haunted nightmare of her past, Nell travels to the house. She sees it as it was in her childhood, fully renovated with her family and Arthur present. This, however, is an illusion. The house is desolate and abandoned in reality. Nell is led to the spiral spiral staircase where she puts a noose around her neck whilst imagining it to be her mother's locket. She is then pushed by her mother's ghost, breaking her neck. As Nell dies, she travels through the past, revealing that she herself was a bent neck lady and has been haunting her younger self all along. I got goosebumps just reading that that part again. Yeah. Because that, that last that's, part. That's the best reveal of the show so far. Yeah. Great reveal. I think I had a, I had a moment, because I kept thinking, is the bent neck lady her mom? Because I kept expecting her mom to be the one because they said her mom committed suicide. And I'm like, did she hang herself? And she's bent neck because she she that. And then I'm like, well, maybe it was the the other previous Hill mom. Because I'm like, it doesn't really make sense for her to be haunting her because she's still alive. But um, at one point I did think, like, could it be her? That would be weird. And then I immediately was like, that doesn't make any sense. So I kind of dismissed it. But when I first um, saw this, I had no, no idea. And when the reveal happened cool. and the way that she's like being dropped into scenes from her life, like that hit yeah. me so hard. And it's, it's and instead from the point of view of the bent neck lady, the bent neck lady is her. Um, and yeah. And, and then also each time she drops her neck, like the way it moves <laughs> and like, it's and, like brutal. bulges yeah. um, is also really horrifying. <laughs> um, yeah. And, yeah. And it's all made better. That, that reveal at the end is all made great by the fact that like this whole episode uh, going in and meeting Arthur, falling in love with Arthur, their wedding and getting to see the, the yeah. like a lot of perspectives from that uh from nell's point of view uh 
it's heartbreaking. The the aneurysm thing is terrifying. Like yep. she's like sleep sleep paralyzed, laying in bed. He gets up to turn the light on and just has an aneurysm and like she's stuck and like the bent mm-hmm. neck lady shows up and it's just like, Oof, well, sleep paralysis, you know, real thing. And people do really see like shadowy figures looming over them. So yeah. uh, I think this is a very smart way to tie horror into like a real world phenomenon um, very effectively. Um, and, you know, the 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 whole relationship was very adorable and then it ends tragically because this is a horror show <laughs> right. um with with um, him having a brain aneurysm which is yeah terrifying um you know the, I, all very effectively done I, eleanor is sort of spinning out of control she throws all of her medication away it seems somehow tied to her interaction with luke like she sees him like she helps him buy heroin Again, this is another example I was saying where like they make us feel sorry for Luke, but then we see him in this moment where it's pretty despicable. Um, and she she buys him the heroin, and then I think the next scene is her throwing all of her medication in the toilet. So the implication is that she's like, I'm not going to be on anything, which we we definitely see is bad. Um, and then Dr. Montague is introduced. Um, I I don't I have a feeling that this is almost more of an homage than anything else. This doesn't feel like the same character at all. I'll be I'll be curious to see if he does more later, but um, and he gives her the idea to go back to the house, um, which of course is a terrible idea, and we we know that. But um, she decides to do it and has convinced herself, oh, it's just a corpse out in the woods, and it's it's okay if I go at night, no big deal, and alone. <laughs> um, but she's off her meds, so you know, uh, she uh, she does it. Um, we do get the cup of stars, um, which is another reference to the book. There's a moment where Mrs. Dudley tell like says a line to her out of the book about how like don't let them take it away from you and it just felt weird again like mrs dudley from the book is a very specific kind of person Mm. and in the show she seems a little different but kind of like trying to be kind of the same um and so to have her deliver this line to eleanor it just felt wrong like i don't know again this is like another moment where it was like they wanted to get that line in there someone liked it a lot in the book you know mike flanagan probably liked the line in the book and he's like i gotta get it in here um but it's weird to have another character say it to eleanor instead of eleanor say it to someone else which is i think the way it's properly done i think that they definitely are setting up her to be different than the dudley be just because like yeah. she's not quite as as it doesn't feel as if she's almost like antagonistic in the in the other book or in Shirley Jackson's story. It seems like she's like, I'm out of here. It does, nothing matters. I take care of my yeah. job and I get well, out of here. Well, we said she's kind of almost comedy at a certain point. Right. She has these like lines she says over and over again. Yeah. Um, we'll be I'll be interested to see where where uh, it goes going forward. But the I, I you can you can see now, at least through five episodes where when I'm reading the book, these things that like stood out to me when I like I remembered this cup of stars like I remembered that being a specific thing that's talked about in the show here and then when it's brought up in, in Shirley Jackson's book I'm like oh, okay like that's a fun little reference right. and it feels like there's a lot of that going on too um, I'm glad it works I'm glad it works sort of retro retroactively in that way for you because my hope is that this show brought a lot of people to go read that book um, yeah. and, and and I hope people had a, a similar positive experience like that. Uh, sounds like yeah I, and i think it's interesting too because it's like then you're dealing with like there will be of course some people who go watch the show and they're like this is this is nothing like what i wanted i wanted the, the big scares the you know what i mean the you mean the go, read the, go read the book 
when they go read the book after yeah, watching yeah. the show like gotcha. there will be people it's always the same thing right yeah. so it's interesting to think of people going the opposite direction mm-hmm. um because like book readers tend to be like this you know what i mean this is the, this is the way that it happened and this is what the story that i'm accustomed to and now this is different but it'd be it'd be interesting to know like what what group of people would go backwards and but like i said i, I i've already let us know on if, you're, if you're a listener who has gone you know either book to show or or show to book um let us know you know either adding to film on on any of our social medias or in the comment section or you you can always email us uh ink to film at gmail.com let us know I, i'd love to hear what people think and um, and what like what where you landed on it too obviously yeah. like did you did you did part of you wish that you read it first or did you like that you watched it first and did that sort of inform what you were expecting with the book and did you enjoy the book in comparison? In a, like, in a that's different that's way kind of the or... point of the show here, right? It's like, yeah. Let's yeah. Um, so, so one thing I got to, I got to highlight, love the soundtrack, to this show. There's like a, this yeah. like creepy piano that I, that I, uh, um, I immediately added it to my writing playlist <laughs> for when I'm writing like horror stuff. I'm like, this is great. Um, it's good. Yeah. You know the 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 moment where she's dancing with her dead husband through the house, and everybody's watching, and like we know that she's not, you know. Well, it mirrors the shot that you talked about from the first episode, where she's dancing by herself in silence. Yeah, and, and it really helps with a lot of what happened in episode one to me. It helps bring it back around. Um, I do like the idea of her being handed the necklace and how that was actually the noose. Yeah. Um, I think it's clever. And then, yeah, the the brutal the brutal reveal. Um, it's a good episode, yeah, and honestly, uh, I, I really loved episode four, but this one is it's very close. Um, as being like my definitely my second favorite of this bunch. Um, very good. Makes me you know obviously these are two strong episodes. You know, at the end of what we're covering here, that make me very excited for what's going to come next. I didn't remember where the half waypoint ended up being but like how how amazing of a cliffhanger was that for you yeah, to go good. stop there and then it ended up being a good spot yeah yeah i um I, i'm definitely intrigued I, I i predict that we are headed back to the house as a group obviously i mean i think it's obvious um and yeah i think there is going to be some sort of doing battle with the house i think we're going to have some skeptics who are going to need to be convinced and we're going yep. to have a uh, powerful dark wizard <laughs> and Theo, who's going to be you know one of the key uh, combatants. Um, and you know, I think Luke also has a sensitivity clearly because he saw he experienced so much. And um, I don't know. I, I'm curious to see how it does. I hope we get more from the father. I hope we get the father's uh, story, and I hope we find out more of the story of that night um, and what happened to uh, Olivia. Um, you asked me before to like theor- like to try and theorize about like what actually happened to her. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know that uh, when when uh, Hugh Crane comes back to the hotel room, he's covered in blood, and he says it's paint. I don't know if I believe him. Um, he's got sort of a far off look to him. I wonder if maybe he ended up killing her in some way, or you know, obviously her as maybe she was being controlled by the house, and he had to like had to actually kill her. Um, you would think there'd be more of like an implication that he actually murdered her rather than this sort of accepted story that it was a suicide. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I, I'm curious enough to see it. I, I know that Flanagan is good enough at these reveals to where it should be a surprise and I'm, I'm sure it will be. So I'm excited to see uh, what is actually revealed. Yeah. A minute ago you were talking about sort of where you thought it was going with like the sort of 
fight and you talked about Theo as the Stark wizard and it's funny how much it sounds like a Stephen King novel when you right. like try, when you paint it out and it's like it's so clear that like Mike Flanagan is like a Stephen King guy like you know mm. that he was reading Stephen King growing up probably or he's like at least a, a massive fan he's adapted tons of his work and it's interesting because it almost feels like a Shirley Jackson adaptation via Stephen King if that makes sense, Maybe like that's bit, sort of yeah. his sort of storytell storytelling uh, aspects that he likes to. And Stephen, Stephen King is kind of a he's kind of a like a black hole in 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 horror, and I mean that in a good yeah. way. In that, just that his gravity is immense, and like you know, I think maybe maybe too often that becomes people's touchstone, and we're maybe giving him too much credit. Um, there are other horror writers who do similar things, but um, he's just so massive; it's like hard to avoid him and hard to not think about him. And and you know, in our defense, Mike Flanagan has done several adaptations for Stephen King, so there's definitely a connection there. It's hard for yeah, there's tons of connections for us too, yeah, just from that and and all this the King that we've covered. Yeah. Um, and then there's also this other thing that I read while doing some research um the red room when you say the red room it's kind of a riff on yeah. red rum red rum yeah and is, i yeah. didn't i hadn't I, thought of that i hadn't thought of way. that either but now that you say it i mean that immediately does make sense um oh and i do we have to shout out another scene that is um clearly sort of a, a reimagining um and that's uh the, the come home now written on the wall and then they're um removing of the of the wallpaper to see the come home actually i thought that was pretty clever and and she gets in trouble with her mother instead of it being um everybody accusing each other of doing it which is what happens in the book so it's different but this is a moment where i didn't mind it i think it fits this story better um the come home thing is like a recurring thing within the show as well because we saw when uh the, obviously the setup was the mother said like when i've clicked the lights twice it means come home or whatever yeah. when the kids like run out of the house and then we get the we get the moment when after or shirley's episode like the little model dream house like the light flicks on twice mm-hmm. and that's like the same thing as like the come home nail that's like baked into the wall yeah. at some point that yeah it's it's all very creepy yeah creepy so anyway yeah good uh enjoying it curious to see where it goes i'm on the record that i hope this show does not end with uh, hill house burning down in some fashion um we'll see what actually happens <laughs> um but yeah I, i'm definitely excited to see the rest of this thing and and to see where they take it i didn't see it that long ago and i'm really enjoying myself just on a second viewing because like the perspective that you'll get from a second viewing and something like this is is really interesting cool because you can see you sort of see the threads throughout and it's mm-hmm. nice but if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever platform you listen on, iTunes, Spotify. I don't think they have reviews, but leave reviews wherever you can and make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and comment on there. Um, we It greatly helps other podcasts to, to uh, keep growing. And if you'd like to connect with us, we are on social media at Ink to Film on both Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and we also have a Goodreads page. Um, you can join that and we have a, you know, we usually have a topic for each book we're reading and and we talk about on there. So we'd love to have you uh, over there. If you wanted to support the podcast in another way, we do have Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have all kinds of tiers, but our, our $2 tier gets you our bonus content. We put out a monthly episode that's usually about adaptations, some sort of like, uh, adjacent adaptation adjacent thing but recently we've done some video content some rankings Mm. uh some other stuff like that so if you're interested in in some extra stuff check out our patreon i think we're gonna do the 2017 version of murder on the orient express this month 
Um, we haven't recorded it yet, so that is subject to change just in case. But um, that's the plan. Um, and if that sounds interesting to you, go ahead and get on there and you'll see it. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what this new version of that Agatha Christie novel uh, uh, ends up looking like uh, for sure. Um, also, we do want to thank uh, Vivek Abhishek, who, whose music Broken Piano is our intro and outro. And also a thank you to one of our patrons, Ben E. He's been supporting us for a long time. So shout out to him and thank you for your continued support. Absolutely. All right. Uh, I am I am interested to see where we go. Next week will be our final Haunting of Hill House episode and we'll be checking out of, of Hill House in some fashion. <laughs> but um, we can never really escape. We, we can never really leave. Maybe, maybe we'll be there. Uh, until the end of time. So I want to try something a little different here at the end. I've uh, been, been kicking around a different option. We, we have our usual sign-off, which is a little boring, so I'm going to try something <laughs> a little different. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.